0: May remain standing uh, for the reading of God's Word. It's in Genesis 22, so if you want to turn in your Bibles there, uh, I also want to say it is very good to see your faces, to hear your voices, to uh, praise God with you, to hear little kids making noises. They are welcome in the presence of God, um, and He rejoices over them. So welcome, and thank you for uh, joining us in worship today. Genesis 22, we're continuing in Genesis, uh, because the book of Genesis forms and shapes God's people for the mission that they're to live. It is forming their identity, telling them who to be and how to live in the world, that they may be agents of transformation, echoing forth and what the world will be like. And so they show forth what is coming in union and in relationship with God. So, let us read Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, I don't know what else he said, but Abraham seems right. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young men, Stay here with the donkey. And I and the boy, a better translation is, must go over there and must worship. And shall surely come again to you. And Abraham took the God, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid on it Isaac his son. And he took his hand on the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, uh, "My father!" And he said, "Here I am, my son." He said, "Behold, it, the fire and the wood. Uh, where's the lamb for a burnt offering?" Abraham said. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together, and they came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand. And took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. What's in your heart? If I were to shake it around, what would I find? If I were to melt it down, what would be left? Jesus says, out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Scripture tells us whatever is the chief object of affection is the God of your heart, and we will give anything to have that God, won't we? And in the moments of testing, whatever we hold, whatever we hold most dear to our hearts is what we will exchange, sacrifice for, and to. Testing happens in a lot of our moments of deep anxiety when we're scared. And it starts to reveal what is really in our hearts. When the pressure mounts, what is going to be found out in your heart? For example, there's this man named Jim. He's a successful engineer. He has worked hard every day of his career. 14 years to be exact. He's loyal to his job. In those 14 years, he has yet to take uh, take more than one day off a year. He's so loyal, in contrast to his millennial friends, that he has not looked for another job, believing that the grass is greener on the other side. Nor has he sold everything and became a mountain climber somewhere out in, like, uh, uh, Kyr- Kyrgyzstan, and then he didn't do any of those things. No, he was committed, he worked hard, his co-workers believed him to be responsible and dependent. His bosses have been so impressed with his work that they always praise him. Jim never turned down the opportunity to say yes, he was the model citizen of employment. Their pleasure in him has made Jim feel so secure and warm in his heart. His photo's on the wall with multiple awards below it, but at home, his wife, yes, she enjoys everything that it provides, but feels like he's a little distant and distracted all the time. His two kids are sad that the dad misses their plays, performances, and events because he has late nights in the office, but it's okay. Mom is ever so loyal to record them for Jim. Jim watches most of them. In order to grow closer to his family, he's playing a vacation this summer. All right? It's a week without internet and phone coverage in the Rocky Mountain West. But as the time of the vacation near, Jim's boss calls him in and tells him, Hey, we've got some deliverables for this company. You've got to put it together. And We need you to be on this project. Jim is fearful because this is his vacation time. He's committed, but Jim is tested at this moment. He's anxious. He's got to decide between his family and his job. Which one is he willing to sacrifice, and what is he willing to exchange? You see, in sacrifice, we're always exchanging one thing for another. We're always exchanging something for what we hold most valuable in our heart. Jim is tested. What will be found in his heart? So the question turns to us. When you're tested, what's going to be found in your heart? What's on the altar of your life exchanging to the God you're sacrificing to? Uh, This is a testing narrative in the Bible. And how do we know that? Because it says it in the first verse. There you go. Just learn some some reading.
1: Um, So it says so,
0: right? So in order to find out what is in Abraham's heart, And in the end, the conclusion was found out to be in Abraham's heart that he feared God. And when we understand fearing God, oftentimes some people think like, oh, am I trembling in fear? Am I freaking out? No, it's not necessarily that that God is going to rain down hellfire on you because the scary preacher man raised his voice and he freaked me out. That's not the kind of fear he's talking about, rather the type of fear that the author, the narrative is, talk- is talking about is a relational reverence. Now reverence, for a lot of people, is like, I revere the flag, I stand up for it, or I do th- I revere these people, I stand up for it. No, it's a lot more than that. You know what it's like? I revere my wife. I have a fear of my wife. And you're like, fear of your wife? Have you seen that lady? I mean she wouldn't hurt hard a fly. Yes, I know that. Okay? Um now she also thinks spiders, now she went from thinking spiders are scary to thinking spiders are like these beautiful, wonderful creatures. So I don't know what to do in my house anymore. Do I squish them? I or do I like set them free? It's a it's confusing. Anyway, so I fear my wife. And so whenever I'm at the grocery store, what I want to do is load my cart with junk food, right? Because that's what my heart desires at the time. But fearing my wife, what that means is, no, I say no to flaming Hot Cheetos. Why? Because she sees every cent that goes into budget. And I love my wife. And the things that make her happy make me happy. That's what relational reverence and fear of God looks like. I defer to her happiness and what she wants because I fear her over my stomach's need for flaming hot Cheetos. Amen. That's what it is. So, this is that tested there. And when God puts Abraham into an anxious and testing time to find out what's down there in his heart. You're like, you know, the theology kid. Yeah, done one year in seminary, you're like God's omniscient; Vince, He knows everything. Why in the world would He ever need to find out what's in Abraham's heart? Well, first off, this is a literary device in order to form and shape the people who are listening, so that they would be the type of people—empathy, of empathy, kindness, and love—who know that they have been loved to show it to other people, right? To know that their God is the one in whom doesn't ask for you to appease him with sacrifice, but in the end you'll find out that God is the one who truly sacrifices in order that you may be free. He slays his own son in order that you may be spared. So God has this testing narrative to demonstrate and to show God's people that they will be provided for in their scariest, most awful time that they can be people of faith, and that for Abraham He has shown how strong and how genuine and how much he's matured over the years. This is the concluding uh, narrative and and, uh, gives a summary of his life at the end. This is it for Abraham. And so testing exposes what is in your heart. Now, you probably want to use everything in my life to be interpreted as testing. Uh, No. But all these little tests, Start to think about it. All these little things exposes what is most genuine in your heart. It will expose our beliefs as either faithfulness or fraud. You know, so we'll see through two pictures, and the two pictures are what's in Abraham's heart, and then what's in our, what's in God's heart, what's in Abraham's heart, and what's in God's heart. So first, what's in Abraham's heart? At the climax of the narrative, we see God declares that He. Uh, knows that Abraham fears God. Fear, fear, mutants. We talk about this relational reference or difference to that person. Testing reveals what is truly there. It's like when you test a piece of gold. Uh, girls, if you ever had that weird high school kid get you something, it's like, it's a gold ring, girl. And then you light it, and you want to test how genuine this gold is, you light it on fire. Why? And because if it turns black and crusty, you know it ain't gold, it ain't genuine. And so, what you do is you put it in the fire, you test it in order to see if it glows gold. And so, what is going on is Abraham is being put into the fire to see what happens. And what does this testing look like? Abraham is asked to give what he holds most precious in dear, the promises of God God had promised him this good stuff and he would have a son, right? And there it is. Isaac. He's so happy about it. And then he's told, sacrifice him. And they, if that was Abraham, I'd be like, excuse me, you say, Well, this is so confusing. Like, you promised me a son, and everything's gonna be great, and then all of a sudden you want me to sacrifice him? You make no sense. And Abraham, like, Got it. "God, God, loan the donkey. Like, and they're out. And you know, and you notice in the Hebrew you notice in the text that it goes, one thing after another. It is like there is no tarrying. There's no waiting. He goes for it. And so what is most valuable, we know it's most valuable to him, because the narrator says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And so he says it like three different ways. This is the most precious thing to you ever. It is like Schmiegel looking at the little ring, his token, and token, like, Yes, and so he's looking at Isaac like that, and the narrator says, "Sacrifice it." Why? Because he's willing. He's wanting to know: Do you love God for His stuff, or do you love God for God? Are you willing to exchange God's stuff for God Himself? There is a beautiful moment. <laughs> Wonderful. And so he's willing to know that. And so he says, "Take your son, your only son." sacrifice him. In order that we may find out, when it gets tough, what do you really love? God's stuff? His blessings? Or God? We like God's blessings, but do we fear God? We like comfort, but are we willing to be made uncomfortable to love our neighbors? Oh, we like peace, but are we willing to call out injustice? We like the feeling of religion, but are we willing to love our enemies? We like equality, but are we willing to sacrifice our privilege? We like acceptance, but are we willing to betray our tribalism? We like grace, but are we willing to be changed by that same grace? Notice that in the text, in the end, it says that they were to be a blessing to all nations. Later on, in the Greek, it would be ethne, ethnic groups. They were to be a blessing to all nations. And so it's the form and shape of these people that want, who want God himself and would bless image bearers, made in his image. But here we are. We're challenged. What will you exchange? Will you exchange the good things for that thing that we hold most, most dear? Whatever we hold most dear is our God. What Abraham is challenged to do is give up what he holds most dear for what should be most ultimate. And what's been revealed in our hearts and our society lately. You know, Big Rona exposed our uh, gods of consumerism. It exposed our individuality, our, learning for, our yearning for freedom. So every time that the government says, hey, you should probably stay home. You should probably wear a mask. You should probably uh, not do this or that. And you're like, Arr! There's part of it was like, I want to go to the grocery store twice a day now. You know, but I had a fear for my wife. I said, no. And so, <laughs> but there's no... The Black Lives Matter movement has also exposed our God's comfort, peace, our posturing, either through vote-getting or virtue-signaling. It exposes that. We want God's stuff, but we don't want God. We want to use him as a prop, but we don't want to know him. We want to virtue signal on social media, but we don't want to make ourselves uncomfortable for the long haul. We want peace, but we won't confront injustice. We want fame, but we won't but we will walk on others to get it. You see, there's always an exchange. We're always making an exchange for the gods that we hold most dear. God and His providence will bring His people into the fires of adversity to reveal what they really place their faith in and what they're really made of. In times of testing, whatever your heart's greatest comfort or security, it will be shown. Whatever you rely on will come to the surface. And for Abraham, here, it was God's promise in God Himself. It says in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, exchanged or offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of worshiping, offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so he was offering up the things of God's promises, what he held most dear, in exchange for God himself. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It was in Abraham's part. What was in it? It was the fear of God, demonstrated in an unflinching faith that the one who would bring about the promises is the one to be trusted. He's the one who can raise Isaac from the grave. Abraham was willing to exchange God's stuff For God Himself. So what's on God's heart? See, God's people are called to be a people formed and shaped to reflect God's kindness, mercy, justice, and goodness into the world. If we're to be a people of justice, then at times we need to turn in our comfort. We need to confess that we sometimes have it really good. We need to disadvantage ourselves from the advantages of others. And we need to do it for the long haul. Why? Not because we appease God by doing it, but we reflect the God of justice who exchanged His most valuable thing, His eternal Son of God, for that which He treasured His people, people made in the image of God, blood-bought lambs, whom God loves, and were to reflect that. So, they, when they would come to difficult times in their history, they could either fear God, or they would fear their comfort. They would fear their reputation. They would fear their government. They would fear what other people around them would say. They would fear. They're tried. But do you fear God? Displayed in faithful forward movement when it doesn't seem like God is going to deliver. Their sacrifices were to be a picture not of God appeasing, not appeasing God, but God providing a substitute. Hence, Abraham says, God will provide for us. Abraham knew what would happen, so much so, and he knew the character of God, so much so, that he would say that we must go worship, and we most certainly shall return. It is in the strongest Hebrew way that they shall return. Abraham knew it, because he knew what was in God's heart, and that was to bless all peoples, through this one. This one offspring. And the people. Of whom you and I are part of. Would display God's love. By the way we relate to the world. We relate to the world in the way we understand that God has related to us. That he sacrifices and exchanges. That he's willing to give up what he believes is good for the greater good. God the true Father. He is the one who does not spare His own Son so that you can be made His children. Jesus is the true Son who didn't speak a word but allowed Himself to be taken. He offered Himself up as a sacrifice. Not speaking a word and going according to plan. He was slain so you could be spared. So what's on God's heart? God is willing to exchange his very self to have you, his people, and to reflect his blessing into the world. There's a story of two brothers just outside, I think it was on the Illinois side of St. Louis. And there they would put up big sandbags this the city, and, uh, and in those sandbags there were little levees, but as they would wash out, it would create quicksand. So, two brothers went to go play on the levee. One day, the brothers get caught in the sand together an older brother and a younger brother. And as time wore on and the sun went down, their mom, mom became worried and called, oh, We need to find them. And so they went out. ...to find them and found them on the levee. When they got there, they see the younger brother's head... ...just barely above the sand. And he's unconscious... ...from the struggling... ...and dehydration. And they begin to uncover him... ...and they ask the younger brother... ...where's your older brother? And he points down... ...and he says, I'm on his shoulders... See, the older brother exchanged his life because he saw value in his younger brother because he loved him. We will exchange for whatever we love most. And we stand on the shoulders of our true older brother, Jesus Christ, who is the one true, just judge, He's the one who gives love and kindness, not just for one tribe, but for all peoples. Disadvantages himself for the advantages of others. He's the true sacrifice, slain, so we can be spared. And that is the image we have when we take the Lord's Supper and we take it together as one body let us pray. Almighty God, as we come and feast on Your love and Your goodness in Jesus Christ, help us to remember that You have made for Yourself a people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that it is through one body, in the true sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that You have made the one true mystical body of every tongue, tribe, and nation, of every skin color. So, Lord, let us rest in the goodness of your love and mercy for a people who did not deserve it, that you exchanged Jesus Christ, your true Son, so that we can be your children. And let us sing rejoicing, knowing that someday we will eat and feast with the risen Lord, our true older brother, on whom shoulders we stand. Let's pray that in Christ's name. Amen.